Welcome to The Mentor List. To seek support and you need to allow yourself to be supported. Really have a point of difference. What is precious, what's really important and then putting some boundaries there. The Mentor List specialises in interviews with top business minds. Gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List. Welcome to The Mentor List. This is our specialist mini-series called Diversity Matters Leaders in Conversation. With your mini-series host, Richard Elstone, partner at Folly Durham, prior guests on the show, and well-known expert and coach in getting execs ready for making a move. I hope you enjoy this episode of Diversity Matters Leaders in Conversation here on The Mentor List. So firstly, welcome to Diversity Matters Leaders in Conversation. I've got with me today Claudine Ogilvie, who's the CIO of Jetstar. And you've got one of the most important jobs, don't you? Because you've got to keep the planes in the air. Yes, tech underpins most of the airline. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic, fantastic. So, well, welcome and thank you for spending some time with us on, on, on our podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. No problem. So firstly, sort of first things first, I'd love to find out all about you and who your parents are and where you grew up and and all of those things. You know, just would be great to find out what made you where you are today. Well, I was born in South Korea. Wow. Yes, a little bit different from the norm. (laughs) That's fantastic. (laughs) And so my father was a diplomat and I spent most of my childhood across Asia and then nine years on and off in France. I went to, well, I changed schools about 17 different times. (gasps) So that kept me on my toes. (laughs) Well, I think at the time I didn't see it, but I was absolutely privileged to meet the amazing people that I did across the world. And I was really fortunate to see all the places and experience what I did. And in part, as you mentioned, it sort of made me who I am. So did you did you speak Korean at all, or was it or were you just only you know South Korea for a small amount of time? Very badly. I speak a lot of language really badly. <laughs> <laughs> I speak English and French fluently. My mother's French Belgium, born in Brussels, but most of my family now live in France, and my parents are now retired in the south of France, in the same village where my grandparents live. The rest of my family on my mother's side are in Paris, and on my father's side they're mostly scattered around the world. So he was born in New Zealand, moved to Australia, and became an Australian. Diplomat, so yeah, a bit from everywhere. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. So, 17 years in loads and loads of different schools across Asia. Yes, so you've got a real appreciation of Asia, I would imagine. I love the place, I feel very much at home in Asia. I find it a warm, exciting, and just an amazing place. Fantastic. And your favorite country in Asia? Oh, gosh, uh, <laughs> I don't think I could pick one. I, I love it. Lots of different ones for different reasons, I think. I do, though, have a an affinity with South Korea, probably just because I was born there, and I've maintained oh, some close friendships and family over the years. Fantastic. Yeah. All right, so brothers and sisters and all of those things? Yeah, two younger sisters. Yeah. I have a sister who lives in Brisbane and she works for the government there, and I have another sister who lives in New Zealand in the South Island, and she's a country vet. Fantastic. Well, you you got family all around the world, don't you? Yes, yes, a little bit everywhere. I, Fantastic. Do you get to see everybody or not really? Uh, we, we try our best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every so often the family will come together for, for an event, a family wedding. But, yeah, we travel a fair bit as well, so that's, that's nice. I think travel's Fantastic. in my blood. And so your dad was a diplomat yes. and mum 
mum was in charge of looking after all the sisters. Yeah, no, she she made sure, or she raised the family. I think she had a career. She had a career in hospitality many years back. But with the constant moving, it becomes very difficult to keep much of that up. So she focused on raising us, raising the family, but also keeping us together through enormous change. I think if I were to sort of relate back to sort of what were some of the key things that I've taken away from growing up in that kind of environment. It's really helped shape me and I think a lot of my views, certainly on, on diversity and diversity around culture and language, norms, religion, and the way that I've been brought up is really about being very open. I think it's the only way to be when you're in so many places and you meet so many people and you the need to, to integrate when you're a kid. And, you know, I thought it was constantly looking for understanding and constantly looking for common ground and I think that has also contributed to having a growth mindset, you know, always seeing the importance of of learning and needing to be open to new things. I think that's sort of a real integral part of the way that I think. Mm. And finally, of course, being incredibly resilient. (laughs) I think that's been sort of a linchpin in everything that I've done. And for me, what's resilience? It's really about keeping a positive outlook. It's about finding opportunity and adversity and seeing learning and progress rather than failure. So I think, you know, when things don't go your way, I think it's very much about how you view it and how you approach it because that's always going to happen to us. Yeah, no, and you've got a real good story about resilience, don't you, as well? So, which we talked about, you know, prior to the interview starting. So, you want to relate to the audience your story around, you know, being resilient? <laughs> yes, yes. So, once upon a time, I used to be a very competitive sailor and I used to sail 470s and I did Olympic campaign with my partner coached by Viktor Kovalenko, you know, the Australian gold medal maker was his nickname. It was a fantastic experience, a very grueling and trying experience, but you, I learned so much and it was incredible in terms of leadership and teamwork and, and all those things. And we had to sacrifice a lot to get to where we were. And that's not just me personally, it's, it's my family sacrificed a lot to make sure that I had this opportunity, that I, I could make all my training and that I had the support I needed to get through it. And we came a very long way. In the lead up to the Olympics, we were selected to be the women's 470 sailing team. And just before all of that sort of went ahead, my partner pulled out for personal reasons, yes, (laughs) which was incredibly disappointing, particularly when you put in so much and so many people other than yourself also have to sacrifice to get you there. So, But really looking back when you get past the disappointment, it really was a defining part of of me and learning about me, but learning about my strengths, my weaknesses, learning about teamwork and leadership and about the bigger picture. And I've taken away so many skills and learnings from that experience that I've applied every day since. Fantastic. And what would you say the biggest takeaway was on a tough moment like that? I think, to be honest, it's the importance of teamwork and leadership and working as one team. So when when you sail in a 470 boat, there are two people. And when you get to that level of expertise, if you want, it's, I don't think that all the sailors have about a very similar skill set, right? They're, they're all really good sailors. But what makes the difference? What makes the difference between an Olympic sailor, a gold medal and no medal really is teamwork. It's how you work together, which is also why when my partner pulled out, I couldn't just find another partner. It doesn't work that way. This is something I apply in business. You know, you can be as smart as you can be, learn and know everything you think you know to learn, (laughs) but it doesn't matter if you're not working in sync with your partner, 
with your team. And part of being really competitive in a boat is about being able to predict and anticipate what your partner's going to do and react accordingly. And that's what's going to make you a winning team. Absolutely. Absolutely. So about some sort of early people in your life, was there any teachers that, you know, out of the 17 schools that sort of just said something to you that helped shape who you are today? Is there anybody way back when that you still look up to fondly? Well, I had a a bit of a think about this question. And to be honest, I think I've had many mentors and I've had them for very different reasons. And it's difficult to single anyone out because they've all given me valuable gems that are completely different over the years. And they've often pandered to me at different parts of my career, but also just in my, my life stages, if you'd like. And I think everybody should have a mentor and everybody should have mentees as well. I think this is something that it helps you not just better know yourself and helps you better understand direction and help problem solve, but by having mentees as well, it surprisingly helps you do the same thing because you work through things with others. So I can't really single any one person out. But what about Vince from you know the for the Olympic team? I mean, is he a good example of someone that could push you, or you know, is there anything that he sort of said over the years that? just resonated with you. Yeah, Victor. Um, Victor, sorry. Vic- yeah, that's no, all right. <laughs> no, Victor, plenty of good gems. He was a very strong leader with a very strong sense of direction. And I think part of what I mentioned earlier, actually, around team and what it takes to get a gold medal is not really, even though, of course, skill and experience, it's the baseline right? You need a certain level of skill and experience and it takes a lot of work. But beyond that, what gives you the edge? It's leadership. It's working in tandem with your teammates. It's predicting what's going to happen and reacting to it seamlessly and knowing exactly how you're all going to work together and, you know, what that looks like in terms of outcomes before you even get there. You know, that's a level of synchronicity that only comes through enormous hard work. Yeah. (laughs) And it's not just skill and experience. It's something else. There's, it's leadership. It's teamwork. It's, it's a different level. So that's what I took away, I think, from Victor. Absolutely. So from a career perspective, mm. tell us a bit about your career. Where did you go to university? What did you study? And you know, what led you to where you are today? Well, I studied in Australia. I went to UTS and I did a Bachelor of Business. I went to Louis Serrance in France and I did business and I did my thesis in Paris as well. And I think, to be honest, I didn't know what I wanted to do at first. So hopefully that gives some encouragement to those people who, who are not sure. And I had a general interest and passion for various parts of business and I loved a lot of it. But I think you know, and through my career, I sort of give you a bit of a thread. I started in with marketing and product management and that customer focus. I really started off with multiple roles in that space. Then I moved into uh, strategy, management consulting, general management with KPMG. Oh, oh, it was great. I loved it. In fact, KPMG were fabulous to me. and I really sort of grew a lot in that role. And then after that, I took on a CIO role with Ridley Corporation, which was a very broad role. It wasn't perhaps your traditional CIO role because I looked after IT and technology, obviously, but also 
sort of ops improvement, the PMO office, which was more of a value management office that the board wanted to better understand how we were, how were we investing in the right so places. So what were your big challenges in that role? Because Ridley is obviously a well-known agribusiness in Australia making fertilizers and things like that from recollection am i right there i think they're, that's... they're a manufacturer of animal products right. animal nutrition products they've got 20 maybe more now <laughs> when i was there they had 20 manufacturing facilities from townsville down to tasmania and so when you in walked Thailand into ridley as, well. as a as a for instance you know how was technology being used and how did you help them transform how they were going to use technology mm. tech was sort of perhaps a, a more traditional technology shop where the team were structured traditionally and they and they operated I think in very traditional operating models and from a technology perspective it was very much around growing that into a much more strategic team that sort of underpinned all the various parts of of Ridley's business in today's manufacturing environment in Australia is pretty tough it's it's highly competitive mm. and to really make it, you've got to automate, you've got to embed technology, IoT, all those process streamlining and, and use lean methodologies across all your operations and tech can really help make that a reality. So I think one of my challenges was building up the technology team to support and lead those pieces of work across various parts of the business to help yeah, them so achieve more, their so goals. So less of a IT, more of a business enablement function, has always yeah. been my scenario Absolutely. that I think the CIO should not be called a CIO. It should be called the chief business enablement officer because really, you know, if IT doesn't work, then the business doesn't function. Mm. Yeah, yeah, spot on. So there's a, there's a layer, in my view, there's a layer of IT which is just fundamentals, foundations, which you can't forget about. All that sort of the infrastructure and the, the you know data centers and all the cloud or that needs to evolve with your business. It needs to evolve at the same pace that you're hoping the front end will evolve. Some businesses sometimes forget <laughs> because it's the back end, it's not so visible, that that also needs to move along and evolve with it. Otherwise, it could end up being quite a costly piece of legacy if you don't evolve it in sync. And the other the other side of it is your, your front end, your your customer or, or internal customer facing side of technology, which to your point enables everything else. That's the bits that people see. That's the, you know, sometimes the more exciting stuff, right? But they both go hand in hand. And these days it's very difficult also to separate technology from the business because technology is an integral part of all our businesses, right? We all use tech at some, at some level. So I think to be truly successful in tech, your operating model at some level also needs to be quite integrated with the rest of the business. Mm. And that looked different for different businesses and different business models. Absolutely. And, you know, if we think about your current role with Jetstar, you know, you're a modern CIO. In other words, you're not, you don't come from the real techie side. You're a business person that almost acts as a, almost like a, a chief relationship manager with the rest of the business. So your role is very much it's all about developing relationships with the franchisees and all that sort of stuff, isn't it, really? Yes, yes. So it, it is a broad role. It's underpinning the tech across the Jetstar group of airlines. So there's a there's a full group of airline, four airlines, Australia, New Zealand, which is wholly owned by Qantas, Jetstar Asia out of Singapore, Jetstar Japan out of Narita, and Jetstar Pacific out of Ho Chi Minh City. And they all have slightly different requirements, but we provide a common suite, if you want, of services and tech leadership across the board. 
So, I mean, it's, it's been an amazing journey, actually, because that's this is really pandered to, I think, a lot of my my passions in Asia and sort of the side. We, we talked about cultural diversity and different perspectives. I found this quite an invigorating role, actually. Mm. Yeah. Well, so what have been your biggest challenges? Well, there's been a number. One is trying to get the balance between what should be homogenous across the Jetstar group of companies because it makes sense, because you'll get economies of scale and synergies and it's not it's non-differentiating. And what is something that needs to be unique to each market? And this also applies within the Qantas group as well. So that's this is a new challenge as well. So what could we leverage with the Qantas group to achieve the same? And so it's not always as obvious as it seems. And cutting the balance between brand differentiation isn't only about the customer-facing stuff, although it's the most obvious. It's also cuts to our operating model. So in Jetstar, for example, if I were to compare Jetstar to Qantas, Jetstar have a low-cost carrier model. We only fly A320s in Australia and we have 787s across Asia. So we've give or take, we've got two aircraft type. Qantas have dozens. Numerous. Yeah. Yes, numerous aircraft type. We also only fly our point-to-point, whereas Qantas do layovers. And that changes how you arrange all your back end, the engineering, the operations, and the tech that goes along with it. And that keeps us low cost as well. So it's very, you've got to be really careful what you touch and what you pull apart and what you think might be competitively differentiating and not. So that, that's probably one of my so greatest Jetstar challenges. So is a, is a world it's, it's a world best practice airline, isn't it? That's my yeah, understanding. Okay. It's more efficient than any other airline out there. Am I right, or what's the benchmark there? Is it more? I mean, you know, low cost. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't have a, a very, very good ratio of being, you know, the amount that, that's spent on resources compared to other airlines. No. Well, being a low-cost carrier, I think we do pride ourselves in being pretty lean, and I think that's been an integral part of our operating model for a very long time. But what we do have, our safety standards and our op standards are world-class, and I have to say we, we probably get that from our Qantas roots in terms of what's acceptable, what's not, what we do not compromise on. So I know that that's something that will give plenty of comfort to many of our customers around the world. But on the flip side, we're constantly innovating. So when you say efficiency, we're constantly innovating. Oh, how can we do this better, provide a better customer experience for less? Because core to our brand is being able to do more for less. We're a low-cost brand, right? So we like to allow more of our customers to fly more often because they're paying less. Fantastic. That's great. So... If you had the opportunity to do so and sort of go back to the graduate that was Claudine Ogilvie that chucking her hat in the air, the bachelor's hat in the air, I've forgotten what it's called now, whatever it's called. If you, if you had the chance to go back to her and say, give us some advice, what would it be and why? Well, there's a few things I've sort of learned along the way and some things I wish I had more confidence in or I had known sooner. But I think some, some of them may, may appear, I think, straightforward as well, but I think you learn through experience as well. So one is be brave enough to be yourself, you know, and don't focus too much on what people want to hear or what you think you should be. I've always been a very 
ambitious person and I've where I've been the most successful is where I have been genuine and I have just been myself. I think know your strengths and weaknesses and what you enjoy because what you're good at may not necessarily be what you enjoy, but if you enjoy what you're good at, you will excel and you will do so much better and you can go beyond so much easier. So I think that's something that has been important to me. I also think to know what you what your strengths and weaknesses, you have to try new things. You know, sometimes and to build that self-awareness, you need to go out there and give things a go and push yourself and find the boundaries. And so I would encourage anybody out there to, if you're very, very comfortable, you should try and make yourself uncomfortable <laughs> at some point. The other thing I've learned is corporate culture matters. I think perhaps I took it for granted that I had experienced so many good corporate cultures and but when I experienced one that was less than fabulous at that point I realized just how incredibly important it was and we're not talking about challenging stakeholders in the workplace I think they are everywhere we are talking about a culture which is you know what people do when no one's looking and it just cuts to the core of the environments that I feel that I can work in as well. And surround yourself with the best people and the best talent because people are your team and people are the business. And that will mean your success as well. But finally, I think it's also work-life balance and how to better manage that. I think I'm still working on that every day. I've been commuting from Sydney to Melbourne for about six years now. And you find a rhythm and you have to try. I think I've I've learned I've had to change that rhythm over my career, depending on life stages, depending on the role and the demands of the role. But it's something that is incredibly important to get right. And if I were actually to reflect some advice that a mentor gave me recently that I found really helpful was define the minimum required for success across all facets of your personal and professional life. Not what ideal, not what you'd like to achieve, but what is the minimum and that you personally would define as being success. And that's really going to help you make the right decisions in terms of trade-offs in your personal and professional life and still feel like you're an utter success at the end, right? Because <laughs> we all yeah. have to trade off at some point. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And talking about, you know, people not doing things when you're not around, you know, doing things when you're not around, mm-hmm. a good example of that is your your board experience, I would have thought as well. You know, your, you've got your first key board role. You know, how are you finding that and how you find the transition between, you know, being a board member to being an executive? It was a fabulous experience and I really enjoyed sort of the learning experience that was in that transition, but it is, it's incredibly different. The perspective is very different and I found myself for the first few months constantly checking myself, am I giving this the right lens? Is this the right lens? Being really conscious of not getting dragged into areas that are really for management and the exec because that's the space I know best. So, but no, it's been a it's been a fantastic journey. I I'm still learning as with all things, I think, but I've really enjoyed it. So, is there a quote that you live by? There is a quote that I I particularly like. Yes, and it's by Kavita Ramdas, and. It goes, we need women who are so strong they can be gentle, so educated they can be humble, so fierce they can be compassionate, so passionate they can be rational, and so disciplined that they can be free. I quite like that one. That's a fantastic one. And do you live by that? I think that's, I could, yes. 
<laughs> no, I like I like that quote. It's something I can relate to. Yes. That's fantastic. And is there a book that you suggest people might read to help them with their career? So I, I don't really have a leadership book that I'm particularly attached to. I watch a lot of TED Talks. I really I really enjoy them. I think they give They're really fascinating, aren't they? Powerful, short insights and diverse. Anybody anybody there that you that you like? Ah, a list, a list. But I can give you a couple of books that I recently read that I found particularly insightful, not specifically on on leadership, but I think their their, their breadth is such that I think they'll give anyone good perspective in my view. It's Strategy Beyond the Hockey Stick, which is a McKinsey publication that I really enjoyed reading. It's very pragmatic. And then another book, which is more from understanding our environment from a perhaps a different perspective on contemporary issues. It's 21 Lessons for the 21st Century by Yuval Noah Harari. I'd recommend it. Fantastic. Well, Claudine, it's been delightful. Thank you so much for taking the time to have this interview with us and the Diversity Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today at The Mentor List. If you'd like to hear more or speak to us about recommending our next interview guest, come on through to mentorlist.com.au. You can also find out more about our suite of mastermind series taking shape in your area, your industry, and your discipline. We look forward to welcoming you to one of our events very soon. Stay tuned for another great show. for listening to The Mentor List. If you like what you're hearing on The Mentor List, the best way to support the show is to just take a few seconds to leave a rating and or comment over on iTunes. You can also find further information about this show and links to further episodes at mentorlist.com.au. Until next time, this is The Mentor List.